The ancient Greeks told a story about a great king named Sisyphus. Sisyphus was supposedly the original founder of Corinth. And though he accomplished much as a ruler, he was most famous for his cleverness and even his deception. He had a number of antics he pursued. He believed that he was wise enough to outwit the gods themselves and even death. But according to the Greeks, the gods eventually had enough of Sisyphus' crafty schemes, so they dragged him to the underworld where he was sentenced to a unique form of torture. He was given a large boulder to roll up a hill. But the boulder was enchanted, so that every time the boulder was just about to reach the top of the hill, it would fall right back down to the bottom. Thus, because of his pride, Sisyphus was doomed to an eternity of pointless and endless toil. He would continually have to work hard, strain to get that boulder up the hill, but every time he was close to reaching his goal, ending the struggle, it would roll right back down, and he'd have to start all over again. What stands out to me from this Greek myth is its notion of what constitutes a kind of hell. What torment, the Greeks thought, to be doomed to an existence of absolutely fruitless work. To be forced to work hard day after day, but never to advance, never to find satisfaction, never to have anything to show for all your labor. Why, that is such a terrible fate. One must do anything to avoid it. You know what the great irony of that thought is? According to the Bible, such a destiny of fruitless toil, that is not the fate of a few proud ones as they go into the afterlife. According to the Bible, that is the fate of every human being who lives on the earth. Truly, the story of Sisyphus, it functions like a parable for humanity. In the Garden of Eden, mankind, our first pair, Adam and Eve, they rose up in pride and in rebellion against their creator. They insisted on finding a satisfaction according to their own wisdom and apart from their creator, God. As a result, God cursed them. And he cursed all their descendants, which includes us today. As Romans 8.20 says, the creation was subjected to futility. God says, you don't want me, you will now be cursed. Death, decay, pain, and hardship, they all entered into the world because of their sin. And though God graciously allowed humanity to continue to survive as a people, and even to multiply, part of the curse was that all of man's pursuits in this world became Sisyphean. Each of us must now toil to get by in this fallen world. But in the end, what will we find for our toil? We will not find any true advancement, any satisfaction, or any gain. It will be like trying to grasp a vapor or trying to chase after the wind. Does such an assessment depress you? This is the hard truth that King Solomon wants his listeners to face at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. 
Though you will work hard, you will not find gain. Now Solomon presents this truth, not because he's a depressed cynic who just wants to drag everyone down into some sort of despairing unbelief. Not at all. Rather, Solomon, as a wise and compassionate man, man of God, great king, he directs us, especially those who are young among us, on what is the only wise, happy, and godly way to approach life. We actually overviewed this way last time. We did an introduction to Ecclesiastes, and I gave you what is the main message that Solomon communicates, and let me just repeat it to you here. Solomon teaches in this book, it's 12 chapters, that life in a fallen world is the most vaporous of vapors. It is insubstantial. It is fleeting. It is puzzling. There's nothing you can do about that. That's what this world is. Anyone, therefore, who lives for this world and for its vain treasures, what will they find? Disappointment, frustration, and then later, God's judgment. But for those who fear God, who do not live for this world, but instead live for God in Christ, what will they find? Those persons will find a life and a joy that is apart from this world And they will find the only way to enjoy life in this world. They will see all the little treasures, not as gain in and of themselves, but as little gifts of love from their Heavenly Father. They can gratefully enjoy them. To say it succinctly, succinctly, as I said last time, truly, life is a vapor. But God says, Enjoy it as a gift, not as gain. But perhaps you protest. Maybe you insist there really is ultimate gain and satisfaction in this world. Maybe you won't say that. Maybe mentally you do assent to what Solomon says. Yeah, you know, everything in the world's a vapor, it's vain. Yep, can't live for anything in this world. Maybe you say that, but that's not actually what you believe. And you know that's not actually what you believe because that's not the way you live. You are caught up in the same sort of craving frenzy as the rest of the people of the world. You are striving to secure ultimate advancement or security or pleasure in the things of the world. And you never feel like you've worked enough, saved enough, seen enough, just a little more. I'll be happy. Just a little more, I'll be safe, I'm sure. So as we begin our investigation of the Word today, consider for yourselves whatever pious words you confess, what do you actually believe about life? How do you actually live? What really is your hope and treasure? We're proceeding into the first long section of of teaching in Ecclesiastes today. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. You can take your Bibles and please turn there if you haven't yet. Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 3. Part of what we saw last time was the presentation of Solomon's thesis in this book. 
His main idea. Ecclesiastes 1.2 expresses it. You can see it again. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived apart from our Lord Christ, he declares all life is vanity. And I told you about the Hebrew word behind that translated term into English. Havel is the word. And it means literally vapor, breath, or wind. And that image gives us a great idea of what Havel means figuratively. Solomon is saying, life is not meaningless, but it is like a vapor. It's fundamentally insubstantial. It's fundamentally impermanent. It's fundamentally incomprehensible. You just can't get your hands around it. You can't comprehend it all the way. Solomon declares that thesis, but now he's going to present his first general argument to prove that such is the state of the world for everyone who lives in it, both Christian and non-Christian. Let's read what Solomon says. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 3 down to 11. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things. And also of the later things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. What a word. In this passage, Solomon provides four startling observations on the vapor-like nature of life so that you and I will not be deceived into living for this world. Four startling observations, and they're all framed by a provocative question provided by Solomon to us in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. Here's the question. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? This is a simple question, but it is a powerful and profound question. In a way, Solomon's already given the answer in verse 2, but now he poses it to us. What do you think, Solomon says? Is there any true profit in this world for man in all his work? The word advantage here could be translated profit or gain. It's a financial term. It's like Solomon's asking, at the end of the day, you tally up all the numbers, what's the bottom line for man? And isn't that a concern that we all have about life? I mean, we approach everything we do, our time, our work, our recreation, always with the question, what am I going to get out of this? What will I ultimately receive from this? 
Will I think it was worth it in the end? One of the greatest pains in life is to discover that something you were pursuing and you thought would provide to you a nice benefit actually was empty. Ugh, I did all that work for nothing. Ever felt that way? Or, oh, that's how the story ends? What a waste. Ever said that? We as humans want to avoid futile pursuits. Solomon knows that. So he's asking the same question that we should be asking. What's the gain? What's the profit for man in this world? And notice the phrase that comes soon after. In all his work, which he does. This is a somewhat understated translation in the New American Standard of what the Hebrew actually says. ESV is a little better here when it gives this translation. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a little bit better. That's more consistent with the Hebrew. Is toil a positive or a negative word? It's a negative word. Toil is hard work with trouble mixed in. Have you ever experienced toil? think we all have, and it's not something we relish. Nearly every day, probably, we face toil. So Solomon's asking, what's the profit for all this toil, all this excruciating work and trouble that we face as men and women and children? We're suffering a lot here. We want to know, what are we going to get out of it? What's the payoff? Notice one more phrase from Solomon here in verse 3. Under the sun. This phrase appears many times in Ecclesiastes. What exactly does it mean? Some interpreters believe the phrase refers to existence in this world that does not acknowledge God. This is life merely under the sun. And in that interpretation, there's this nice little play on words you can do. Life under the sun, S-U-N, is different than life under the Son, S-O-N. That is pretty snazzy, and there's something to that. But that particular interpretation of this phrase doesn't really fit with Ecclesiastes as a whole. The phrase is better understood under the sun. It simply means the world in which we live. Life in time. Life in a fallen world. Whether you fear God or you don't. We all live under that many times harsh but continually blazing ball in the sky. But we want to know, is there any gain in a world under the sun? Might there be some treasure that we can live for here that will make all the toil worth it? To help us answer, Solomon directs us to four startling observations that should teach us not to live for this world, but really to live for God. And the first one, The first starting observation of this vapor-like world appears in verses 4 to 8. The beginning part of verse 8. What's that observation? Number one, the earth toils in an unsatisfying circle. Look at verse 4 again. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again, Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. 
to the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Solomon's first observation, one that he wants us to see as well, is that the earth plainly has a Havel-like, futile existence. You want to ask if there's true gain for man in this world? Just start by looking at creation. Does creation experience any advancement or gain? Notice the first phrase that appears in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. This word order is probably not what we expect. We would expect a generation comes and a generation goes. Actually, that's the way the NIV translates this verse. But Solomon has chosen this word order specifically. By emphasizing leaving first, it's almost like the new generation, it's no advancement, it's just a replacement. It's just status quo. There's nothing fundamentally new about this new group of people. Something else to note here, the verbs in the English translation are in the present tense, goes, comes, but in the original Hebrew, they're actually participles. Many of the verbs actually in this passage are participles. And you ask, well, what's a participle? Participle is just a fancy word for a verb that acts like an adjective. An adjective that emphasizes continual action or characteristic action. Normally, they're translated into English with an I-N-G. So, a more literal translation of verse 4 would be, a generation going and a generation coming. You see how it's emphasizing that continual characteristic action? Whole masses of people are constantly going and coming into the earth. There's a whole lot of activity as far as mankind is concerned. But what's the net effect? Notice the end of verse 4. Despite the constant recycling of generations, whole generations of transient humanity on the earth, the earth remains as it ever was. No real impact. The earth just keeps doing what it's always been doing. This hurts, right? Because man wants to make his mark on the earth. Maybe you yourself. Yeah, I want to do something that has a lasting impact. Solomon says, just look. Just look at the physical world. It quickly has forgotten whole generations of humanity. And it's going to do the same for you. Generations keep going. Generations keep coming. But all those persons don't fundamentally change the earth. What does the earth just keep on doing? Look at verse 5. Solomon points out first that the sun is ever rising and setting. Rising and setting. It completes its course for the day and then gets ready to do the same job tomorrow. In other words, no change, no advancement, no profit. Just a lot of hard work as far as the sun is concerned. And notice the word hastening in verse 5. Hastening to its place, it says. The idea in the Hebrew term, uh, one idea in the Hebrew term is the idea of panting. Usually you pant when you're like really tired, but you have to keep on going, right? That's the image of the sun here. This is not the sun excitedly or even dispassionately going about its work. Yes, I get to shine another day. That's not the image here. This is the sun just hustling dragging himself forward, okay, finish another day, got to get ready for tomorrow. 
The son is metaphorically weary with his work. But he has to go back to it continually over and over again. And it's not just the son. Notice verse 6. The wind is in the same state. Just as the sun is moving from its unending circuit from east to west, the wind blows in a circle from north to south. So we've got all the directions covered here. It's a compass rose of futility. And notice how vain the wind's movement is. That phrase there, it says, the third line, the wind continues swirling along. Very interesting, the somewhat awkward sounding in the, in the Hebrew. Literally it is, going around, going around, the wind is going. The wind is literally going around and around and around in circles. Is there anything more vain than that? Like the sun, the wind has its appointed circuit to run, and it runs it, but it has nothing to show for its effort in the end. Nothing fundamental changes, nothing advances. And then in verse 7, Solomon considers the rivers and streams. The water channels, they also have work to do. And their job is to flow into and to fill up the sea. But is the sea ever full? Does God ever take those rivers and streams inside, aside and say, Good job! You did it! You finally filled it up! You can stop now. No, that never happens. The sea level, sea level never even appreciably, appreciably rises due to the hard works of rivers and streams. The rivers just keep on returning to this ceaseless work with no lasting accomplishment or profit. So just looking at the created order, is there any gain in this world? Solomon adds his commentary at the beginning of verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome. Now again, I think the ESV is a little bit better here with its translation. ESV says, all things are full of weariness. That's better because the Hebrew term has the idea of being weary rather than causing weariness. See what Solomon's saying? He's saying the creation itself is weary with the monotony and the incessant activity that yields no true gain. Everything is weary. And doesn't Paul say the same thing in Romans 8.22? Romans 8.22, For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's like creation knows it's caught in this cycle of futility. It longs to be free. It longs to be redeemed. It longs to be restored along with the children of men. But for now, the world must continually and wearily go about its futile work. And if that's the state of creation, and that's where we live... Are we going to do any better? This is the first observation that should direct us away from living for this world. Second startling observation appears in the rest of verse 8. Because not only does the earth toil in an unsatisfying circle, but so does man. Man toils in an unsatisfying circle. Look at the rest of verse 8 again. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What is man's response, his reaction to living in this world weary with futility? It's only a series of continual inabilities and frustrations. Now, some might put 
that second line in verse 8 with the previous section, I, I think it's its own because these three lines in the latter part of verse 8, they're all grammatically parallel in Hebrew. So I think we've got three inabilities being brought to our attention having to do with man. The first is that man is not able to tell it. Literally, man is not able to speak. It's kind of a funny statement. What does Solomon mean by that? Certainly Solomon doesn't mean that man cannot talk at all. I mean, that's obviously wrong. I'm talking to you right now. So what does he mean? If we consider the two phrases that follow and their parallel grammar, I think we have to understand Solomon to mean that man is not able to speak fully or satisfactorily about something. And what is it that man cannot tell or speak sufficiently about? Oh, really? Everything. Everything. Ever notice that? Consider the publishing industry. Is there any topic for which once someone publishes a book, that's it, no other books in that topic will be published? No, actually. Even for the most obscure topics, there's always book after book after book produced. No one has the last word on anything. Or consider modes of artistic expression. People rave about books and paintings and films that deeply probe the nature of human existence. Oh, yeah. He's really, he's on to something there. He's communicating something there. But has any work of art fully explained it? Has any art really captured all what it means to be human or to live in a fallen world? No. It's never happened. And it never will happen. Man is not able to tell it. He feels an intense desire to express himself and to explain and to communicate about this world. And he does. But it's never enough. Man is not able to tell it. And we ourselves, we crave expression. We crave being able to classify and explain this world, but just as the world is caught in futility, so is our speech. That's not the only part. Next, notice Solomon says that man's eye is not satisfied with seeing. The third line there, verse 8. The eye is never sated. It never says, that's it. I don't need to see another beautiful vista. I'm good. Or... That's the last Netflix episode I ever need to watch. Finally canceled that subscription. Or even, that's the last article about the election I ever need to read. The eye never says that, right? And today we are flooded with more visual stimuli than ever. But has it sated man's appetite? Has it even reduced man's appetite? Not at all. It's only increased it. I want to see more. I want to learn more. I want to read more. Man's eye is never satisfied. Have you found it to be different for you? Finally, man's ear. Man's ear is not filled with hearing. And there's a repeat of some of the terms that Solomon just used to describe the sea not being filled up by the rivers. In the same way, man's ear is never filled up no matter how much music or how much teaching or how much talking is poured into it. Ever find a new favorite song? Ah, it's a joyous occasion, right? Oh, I love this song. You just want to listen to it again and again and again, but then what happens? Oh, you start to get sick of it. Like, maybe I shouldn't listen to it as often. 
So you listen to it less and less until eventually you just forget about it because you found a new favorite song. Why does this happen? Because man's ear is never filled with hearing. These are just samples of what it means to be a man, a woman, a person in this world. Are you catching on to what Solomon's observing? Just as the earth is caught in an unsatisfying circle of toil, man as the inhabitant of the earth is caught in the same cycle. Man toils, labors, and works, but he's never able to find lasting satisfaction, not for his mouth, not for his eyes, not for his ears. So where indeed is man's profit in all his toil? You want to leave a lasting impact on the earth? It won't happen. You want to find lasting satisfaction for yourself or for humanity? It won't happen. But perhaps someone says, well, okay, man hasn't found lasting gain in the world yet, but what about the future? The future is full of possibility and hope. Might humanity discover something new that frees and fixes his condition? frees us from this vapor of vapors existence in this world? Or might I myself find something or contribute something into this world that will be new and true gain for me? Anticipating such thoughts, Solomon has a third startling observation in verses 9 to 10. Number three, man experiences nothing truly new. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. If you just examine these lines, you can see there's a lot of parallels and a lot of repetition. And that's done on purpose. The form of the message actually complements the content of the message. This kind of repetitive little section, it's just like life in this world. Man hopes for and craves the new. But he doesn't find it. He only finds repeats of the old. Now you may hear that and uh, find yourself resisting it a little bit. You may say, well... Come on, I've experienced a bunch of new things in my life. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And just look at the progress of humanity. I mean, we've come a long way since Bible times. We've got indoor plumbing. We've got uh, antibiotics. We've got a space program. Come on, you're telling me nothing's new? Well, that notion is partly true and partly not. Yes, there are elements of life that we experience that are or that feel new to us. And there are technologies and institutions and even experiences today that did not exist in the past. But Solomon says what he does for a reason. And he's speaking by the Spirit of God. So we can't just be like, Solomon, you're wrong. No, he's right. We just need to understand what he means. I believe the answer to what Solomon is getting at here is that though we experience new things, we don't experience anything fundamentally new. Not personally and not as a people. 
And let me give you an illustration. Actually, I'll give you several. I remember seeing a meme that put side by side two pictures. On the one side is a picture of passengers on a train in the present day. And the other picture is a picture of passengers on a train in the 1950s. Now, in this picture, in the present day, what do you suppose all the passengers on the train are doing? They're on their smartphones, of course. But in the picture of the passengers in the 1950s, what do you suppose they're all doing? They're all reading the newspaper. Times change, technologies change, but is anything really new? Let me give you another example. Everyone these days is talking about how unprecedented this COVID-19 situation is. And there are some new aspects of it, but is it really so unprecedented? The world has experienced plagues and pandemics before. And it's even experienced controversies about how to protect from those plagues before. Even about masks. Are masks effective? Are they not effective? Should you do it in church? We saw the same things in the flu pandemic of 1918. You can see it in the newspapers from that time. Now it's true there wasn't the internet, there wasn't globalization, there wasn't social media back then, and there were a lot more deaths in that pandemic. But in terms of kind, our crisis isn't all that different. Or take one other example of the past repeating itself. I know how some people are so zealous for the King James version of the Bible today. King James only. This Bible translation served mankind well for hundreds of years. Time-tested. It's practically inspired from God. Did you know that such arguments are nothing new? When Jerome tried to create a new Latin translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew in the 4th century A.D., most people weren't working in their translations from the original Hebrew at that time, he decides he's going to make this translation, but Augustine rebukes Jerome by asking, what's wrong with just using the Septuagint? which is the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. Godly men have used this translation for hundreds of years. It's time-tested. It's practically an inspired translation from God. Augustine actually said that. And you know what's even more amazing? Guess what happened when men tried to create a new translation from Jerome's Vulgate in the 1400s and 1500s? The exact same thing. Catholic Church said, Why? What's wrong with this translation? It's practically inspired. Actually, they say it is inspired. Many examples such as these could be put forward. Circumstances change. There are different details in in, in future situations, but fundamentally, nothing is new. What seems new to us is really just an upgraded different or recombined version of things we've already seen. Actually, you know, this is something that always gets me about science fiction. Science fiction, you know, it's so interesting and like, ooh, new ideas. But then you look at all the different alien races they come up with or the different places they visit, and you're like, hey, that looks familiar. That kind of looks like the things on Earth. It's because there's nothing fundamentally new. You can recombine it, you can upgrade it, but it's still all basically the same. Now, we're still grateful for those upgrades and advances. I'm grateful for the technology we have, the medical advancements we have. Praise God. Thank God for that. But the things that we really want to see change, they're not going to. This world, 
mankind. Sin, death, pain, frustration, those things are not going away. There's no earthly escape from these realities. And yet how often we cling to the hope of the new. The promise that maybe something, something yet unseen will come and make a real difference in my life. Oh, a new diet, a new dress, a new car, a new job, a new marriage, a new government. Maybe this will be what I'm waiting for. Or maybe I myself... If it's not around me, I can find it. I can contribute it. This will be my gain. I added something new into the world. You know what God says. You know what life says. It's not possible. Nothing fundamentally new will come from you or be experienced by you. And you know why it is that we find ourselves hoping so much in the new? It has to do with Solomon's last observation in this section. Number four, man does not remember the past. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. This is why we don't recognize that there's nothing new, because we don't remember the old. We can't compare it. Now, of course, verse 11 doesn't say, or isn't to be understood to say, we remember absolutely nothing about the past. No, you can remember what happened yesterday in various ways, and there is such a thing as the study of history. Nevertheless, there are at least two ways that Solomon's statement is true. Number one, though people, some people remember earlier things, most don't. Do you think most people in the world are well acquainted with history? Most people in the world are not even well acquainted with the present. You know, those surveys that you see pop up on the news every now and then, they're like, they asked, you know, 10,000 people who the president of this country is, and like half the people get it wrong. Uh, what hope is there for the past then? But lest we become too hard on others and dismissive of them, think about your own ability to remember. How much do you know about your ancestors' pasts? Do you even know the names of your ancestors beyond your grandparents? How much do you know about this country's history? How much do you know about the other countries and their histories in the world? Though there are historians who have special knowledge of the past, Humanity as a whole remembers very little of the past. And what we remember is often vague and sometimes misremembered. Oh yeah, George Washington did this, Abe Lincoln did this. Actually, no, he didn't. So there's that aspect of there's no remembrance. But this fact leads to another way that there's no remembrance. That statement from Solomon is true. Number two, no one learns from the past in a way that's fundamentally transforming or rescuing of humanity. Someone once said, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. That's a pretty true statement. While the past can and does help us in certain small, limited ways, 
Man never learns from the past in a way that's truly helpful in escaping the vapor of vapors existence that we all share. Instead, mankind keeps making the same mistakes over and over again. And it pursues the same useless idols, treasures, and hopes. You know, as a case in point in this, the nation of Israel. Look at them in the Bible. You'd think, look at all God did for you and blessing you. Look at all the times that God chastened you from turning away. Why are you doing it again? Don't you remember? Probably the most obvious example of this is when they literally said, let's go back to Egypt. You were enslaved in Egypt. They're like, oh, it was good there. We had the leeks. We had the melons. We had all the food that we wanted. This wasn't just a problem with their brains in terms of remembering. Why did they fail to remember in a way that was helpful? Because of their proud hearts. Because they were stubborn in heart. Therefore, they refused to learn the lesson that they needed to from the past. And it's still true for man today. It's even true for us at times, isn't it? Think about how people make the same mistake over and over again when it comes to placing hope in our modern American political system. We hear the same things every election cycle. How many times have you heard, this is the most important election? How many times have people believed that if their candidate would only win, then everything would be fixed? And then how many times are people disappointed to find out that their elected candidate won, but he didn't fix everything? But instead of saying, oh, you know what? I shouldn't have put so much hope in that political candidate. You know what they do? They come up with excuses. Oh, it was the other party. They got in the way. He would have done it if they had just let him, but he got in the way next time. Next time. We'll do it right. And everything will be Will we ever learn? Or let's get even more personal. How many times have you pursued a sinful and foolish course in your life? And you experienced the consequences of it. You got into a lot of trouble. You were very disappointed. You realized the thing didn't give what you thought it would give. But then what do you do? You go right back to it. Why? Don't you remember? Don't you remember what that experience was when you pursued it before? It wasn't satisfying. It only brought you trouble. Why are you going back? Won't you learn? You say to yourself, maybe this time will be different. Maybe this time I'll find what I'm looking for. But in your heart, you already know the answer is that's not true. This is the common experience of mankind. We generally do not remember the past, and what we do remember, we don't remember in a way that's fundamentally helpful to us. And if we ourselves can't remember the past, then what hope is there for the next generation? The next generation is just going to be as forgetful as we are now. That's what Solomon says. There will be for them no remembrance. Humanity doesn't change. We just recycle. We never remember. We never learn. And thus, we never progress. As a people and as individuals, we don't find gain in this world. We're just like a hamster 
running on a wheel. No matter how hard we run, we never get anywhere. By the way, this last observation from Solomon, it shows how pointless it is to live to be remembered. And isn't this a fundamental temptation? How many times in history or art have we had people vainly express, I will make a name for myself to last all time. I will have, oh, I will make my family's name great for all generations. People will remember me or they will remember us as being particularly awesome. Wasn't this what the ancient people of Babel said when they first tried to build a tower? Let's make a name for ourselves. How many people pursued all their different accomplishments in the name of producing them for themselves a name? And you know what? We don't remember it. Their accomplishments are gone. It's not significant to us anymore. Same is true for you. If you want to make a name for yourself, you've got to hear from Solomon here. It's not going to last. Within a few generations, no one will remember you. Or very likely, no one will. And if they do remember you, it won't be in a way that's particularly profound. Just as you don't remember all the supposedly great men and women in the past, so others will not remember you. So we consider this whole argument from Solomon in this passage, verses 3 to 11. Can you see now why Solomon says what he does in verse 2? Vanity of vanities. The natural world is stuck in an unsatisfying circle. Man, as an inhabitant of that natural world, is stuck in the same circle. We experience nothing that's truly new, and we do not remember the past in a meaningful way. What's the answer to Solomon's question? What is the profit of all man's toil under the sun, even all your toil? The answer is, there is no lasting profit. There is no gain. There is no gain in this world for all your excruciating toil and labor. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard mankind works, it will not find lasting gain or fulfillment. This is what life is. This is what life in a fallen world is. It is insubstantial. It's fleeting. And it's ultimately incomprehensible. It's like Sisyphus painfully rolling that rock up the hill just to watch it fall right back down. Now you might be asking in response, well, what then? All right, so maybe I won't find true gain in this world. Maybe I will always be disappointed. But maybe I should just keep chasing these vain pleasures anyways because at least it will temporarily numb the pain of existence. I mean, after all, what else, what other choice do I have? Actually, there is a better way. In fact, it's the only way. There is a way to true gain and lasting fulfillment. What way is that? Let me appoint you again to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, last two verses of the book. Verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. Solomon says, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. Literally, this is the whole of man. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You see, the way to lasting gain in this world is not actually in this world. It's apart from this world. 
It's in God. Our creator is the one that we were created for. So of course, any method of approaching life that doesn't seek God as the ultimate gain is doomed to frustration. We weren't designed for that. You weren't designed to find gain or satisfaction in the world, but in God. And worse, by running away from God, seeking the world instead of Him, you come under God's judgment because only He is worthy of devotion and worship, not created things and not you. Man's all, man's design is to walk with God and depend on Him continually. It is to fear Him. It is to seek God as the ultimate treasure and not the mere things of the earth. So, if we will actually stop going the way the rest of the world does, if we'll stop rebelling against God, actually fear Him, actually keep His commandments, actually seek Him, then we will rediscover the joy that was always God's design for man. A joy that is not based on this world or the things of it, but of He who is beyond it. Listen to the way that Jesus himself, Son of God, describes this truth to the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus was talking with this woman at the well about the water she was drawing. Everyone needs to drink water to live. But then Jesus says to her in John 4, verses 13 to 14, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Wow. Everyone is thirsting in this world. That's why they strive the way that they do. But Jesus, the Lord, says, I'm the only one who can provide true life and satisfaction for the thirsty. Not in the way that they're seeking it, but in the way that they need it. How does one come to drink, partake, know, have this living water from Jesus? It is to be his disciple. It is to come to know him by repentance and faith. That's what Jesus said, right? Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is near. To know Jesus Christ, to know true gain, You must repent of living for the things of the world. It is the vainest thing, but it is also an evil thing. Solomon shows us that it is of no profit to seek the treasures of the world, to seek those as your idol and as your God. You must repent of that. Turn from that. No longer walk your sinful way in pursuit of idols. Turn from that. Turn from yourself and turn to God. Embrace Him by faith. Faith in what? Faith in who he is and what he's done. Jesus Christ, the God-man, he came into the world to save sinners. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He He died a perfectly substitutionary death. He rose victoriously from the grave so that all those who believe in him would have their sins totally paid off before God. And they might be clothed with Christ's own perfect righteousness, made acceptable to God through Jesus and not through their own good works and not through ritual. If you want to gain God, which is the ultimate treasure, it's the only true gain for life, then you must repent of your sin and your idols, and you must turn and embrace Jesus 
He is my Lord. He is my God. I want to follow him, and he's the only one who can make me righteous. All by himself, his work, he's the only one that can make me righteous before God. If you do that, then not only is what Jesus said true, this living water will become in you a fountain of water unto eternal life. You will inherit eternal life with God, but you already get to drink of that water, so to speak, during this life. Make no mistake, Solomon is not saying that your life is doomed to misery because you live in a vain world. That's not true. It's doomed to misery ultimately if you live for this world, but there is a happy way to live life. There is a wise way to live life, and that way is when you live in the fear of God, when God is your gain, then, it's like I said at the beginning, Life then becomes a gift to be enjoyed, thankfully, rather than some rat race for gain. God has many good things for us in this world. Things that he commands us to give him thanks for, and he intends for us to enjoy, but not in and of themselves for ultimate joy. Oh God, thank you so much for this food. I'm going to enjoy it apart from you because this is going to bring me ultimate fulfillment. No, that's foolish, and that's sinful. But God says... If you will seek me first, then I want you to enjoy that food. If you will seek me first, then I want you to enjoy those companionships you have with your friends and your family and your spouse. These are my gifts to you. They won't satisfy you in and of themselves, and yet they are my kind gifts to you during this life. When God is your gain, life becomes a gift that you can wisely utilize and enjoy in thankfulness. So which way are you going to live? You have to answer that same question that Solomon posed in verse 3. What is your profit for all of your toil that you toil in this world? Solomon has already directed you towards the answer. Will you stubbornly insist, no, I do know. I got something. It's great. I know it will bring me fulfillment. You know who also said that? Adam and Eve. And they were so wrong. Don't be so stubborn. Give that up. Humble yourself. Listen to your heavenly Father who's appealing to you from this book through Solomon. Say, no, I want God. And I want whatever God provides. Because that's the good. That's the wise way. Will you listen to your heavenly Father? One way leads to joy in life. The other way leads to frustration. Which do you want? Close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this word. Lord, it has to pierce through those, those wrong things that we often believe and cling to. Lord, it's so easy, especially in our materialistic society in America, to look for gain in this world, to trust in science, to trust in philosophy, to trust in pleasures, to trust in all these new products that keep coming out. But they won't bring gain. They're just old things dressed up in a new way. But there was something new in the world, but it didn't come from the world. It was you. Lord Jesus Christ, you came into the world to save sinners. You did what was unthinkable, the unexpected. You came to redeem those who had no reason, nothing in themselves to make us worthy to be redeemed. You did that for your own. For all those who would repent and believe, they have eternal life, which they even taste now. 
because they know you. Lord, I pray for any who don't know you today that they would know you. And for those who do know you and get so easily entangled up with the things of the world that they would cut off those entanglements and say, no, I'm not going to live this old way, the vain way that the world continues to live. I want to live for God and thereby enjoy the world, enjoy life, enjoy the good gifts of God in a proper way. Lord, you have outlined so kindly that wise and good way for us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be so kind as to work and cause us to take that way. In Jesus' name, amen.